0: Welcome to this week's edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Don, we talked this week to the President and CEO of Acadian Sea Plants, a company in rural, based in rural Nova Scotia. Uh, and I think uh, it was one of my favorite conversations that we've had this year so far. Just a very, very, very interesting story. And not, I think, what people might expect.
1: That is certainly the case. I've known of this company for a long time. A friend of mine, Jim Meek, has written a a pretty good history of the company, Louis DeVoe, the founder, and his son, JP, called um, Cultivating Success, which is a very interesting read for anybody interested in entrepreneurism in this uh, region. Here's a company that's based out of Halifax, headquartered in Halifax. They now have people in 21 countries They export their product to 80 uh, other countries, uh, and uh, they have an enormous research R&D team uh, supporting the development of their products, which have become very sophisticated, especially in terms of the agricultural uh, market, which might surprise a lot of people. Who knew seaweed could (laughs) do so many things?
0: No, and it shows my ignorance. I thought that that's what they did—that they sort of packaged up dried seaweed and shipped it to you know, other markets. But that's not—they don't do any of that. They they take this seaweed and turn it into highly valuable research-driven products that they ship in, as you say, to eighty different countries in the world. They've got three manufacturing sites in rural Nova Scotia, one in in New Brunswick. So they're they're they've got yeah they've got a tremendous footprint, over four hundred employees, fifty. In their R and D center, and I think his insights into how to build the company, how to use research to develop value added products, are going to be very uh, interesting for the listeners.
1: Well, you know, uh, uh, we both love these kind of stories. These are the kind of stories that most people don't know anything about. When when you have a business that does uh, really B two B uh business uh, you, as a consumer you wouldn't know anything about them obviously they're not in the news a lot <clears throat> um but very successful we need we should be very proud of these companies in in this region that are that fly under the radar a little bit but are incredibly successful doing really interesting work and in some ways leading uh the sector that they're in and um you know jp also mentioned that towards the end of the um interview uh, that they're they're now buying country companies up and other other parts of the world so that's all being done out of basically their their head office in halifax so we need a lot more companies doing that sort of thing you know he said uh i think if i I remember correctly they sell they have no revenue coming from nova scotia (laughs) 98 percent of the revenue it comes from outside of canada 98%. And that creates all those jobs, all those jobs which end up supporting, you know, uh, government services are being paid for by people somewhere else in the world. We need a lot more of that.
0: It's impressive. A lot of the young companies today, they're trying to build up to a size where they'd be attractive to sell out. And uh, and, uh, this company and many others that we've interviewed is the opposite. They're actually getting large enough here and then buying up companies Around the world and building their empire from Nova Scotia, from the Maritimes, and I think that's that's very very exciting. And I just want to point out there's another entrepreneurial mother uh, and woman uh, in the in the DNA of this company. And it seems to me we've had a couple of examples of that recently, Don. Uh, and that's an exciting part of the story as well as as well as the fact that he had that Louis Devoe had something to do with the founding of the Snow Crab commercial fishery. It just you know before we started that's this company. a big th- so, very impressive. Yeah,
1: in, in fact, uh, um, you know, that created a, a, a number of other very successful com- companies in the region. So, um, you know, it shows the importance of what one individual with some some dreams can do. And um, I, one of the stories that I, I, I personally related to, I think JP said that his grandmother was had uh, a general store. And my grandfather also had a general store. It just I had forgotten about that, but you know that I remember going into these general stores. You know what they're like; they're fascinating, and of course, they're hard to run. <laughs> so it's it's a good place to figure out how to be an entrepreneur, I guess.
0: All the fundamentals of how to, what you need to do to run a business, of pricing and purchasing and selling and inventory that that you get all of that with these general stores. We don't see many of them anymore. Uh, But you're right, it's a good background. So without any other uh, uh, introduction, here is our excellent conversation with J.P. DeVoe. Welcome to the Insights Podcast, J.P. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we start talking about the company, why don't we start with a little bit about your father, uh, Louis, the founder of the company when and where was he born what was his early life like for him in rural nova scotia we're trying to paint a portrait of of some of these very successful entrepreneurs uh, across atlantic canada
2: well when you look back at my father's background uh you know he was born in 1931 in salmon river not far from yarmouth um, at that particular time there were no paved roads there was no electricity uh you know he grew up on a farm uh, there really wasn't much uh, there. There was no no indoor toilets. I mean, that was the that was the way it was back then. And and if you looked at that, he had two older uh, an older brother and older sister. Uh, you could only go to school to grade eight, and he was the youngest one in the family. But when you when you, his mother was absolutely adamant that he was going to go past grade eight. And so she she basically forced him to go down to University St. Anne at the age of 13. And he was going to go in boarding school, which he absolutely detested. Okay. And you, you can ask him all about that. Uh, but he, you know, he couldn't stand it. But she made him do that. He finished his high school education and then continued and went and did a, a Bachelor of Arts at University St. Anne. So I guess by that time, he was okay with it because he made the decision to stay there. And so his mother really was instrumental in making sure that he had
0: an education that he could then go and then do whatever he wanted with his life. So uh, he had a bit of a career before he started the company. Can you tell us a little bit about his early career path? Um, I understand his first job was in Moncton uh, from the book.
2: So it's interesting because he did a Bachelor of Arts at University of Saint Anne, but he really realized that what he wanted to do was something more technical. And so he, he went to St. Mary's University, uh, studied engineering, and then finished off uh, at that time was Nova Scotia Technical College and got an engineering degree. So he had that opportunity to get an arts degree and an engineering degree and, you know, and came out with a degree in mechanical engineering. From there, he got his first job. I think it was called Moncton Foundry in Moncton. I think it was 1957, so off uh, he went, and uh, 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 just after graduation, uh, he married my mother, right? So they off they went to uh, start a family in, um, uh, in Moncton, uh, and lo and behold, guess what? I was born in Moncton, so that was the, uh, that was the result of that in 1958, um, you know, a year later. Uh, and and that really gave him an opportunity to see what uh, you know working as an engineer was was like. Um, it lasted a couple of years, and then after that, he went off to uh, to Ottawa, uh, worked for the Patent Office for a little bit, and from the Patent Office, he went from there to Department of Fisheries and Oceans, and this is where he really started to exercise a little bit of some of that entrepreneurial spirit that came out of his mother.
1: Uh, <clears throat> In Jim Meek's uh, biography that came out last year he is said to have pioneered the creation and development of the commercial crab industry in Nova Scotia. I found that really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more about that part?
2: When when you look at at that time, we all know what snow crab is but snow crab didn't even have that name. As a matter of fact it was basically a nuisance. So for the other fisheries, they'd get these crabs and they would just take them and throw them away. Uh, So there was no fishery that existed, but there was a commercial crab fishery on the West Coast. And so um, DFO at the Times asked my father, can you go and take a look at that, what's happening over in the West Coast, and see what we can do to go and replicate that with these crabs that were not known as snow crabs. So they actually came up with the name snow crab. But what he did is he figured out, all right, these are the types of traps that you're going to need. Um, This is the types of processing plants that you're going to need. These are going to be the markets that you're going to have to go after. All those particular pieces had to be put together. So he found, I think it was about a half a dozen entrepreneurs. And those entrepreneurs, and said, look, he says, we're going to try, DFO is going to try, we're going to help set you up, all right, and then see what you guys can do to build this particular industry, which did not exist, Okay. Now, the real interesting about that is there, you know, there was half a dozen of them. Three of them, you know, made literally hundreds of millions of dollars out of it. The other three failed. It's an interesting, an interesting to, you know, perspective when you look at that. What was the difference between the first three and the second three? Every single one of those individuals all had the same opportunity and yet uh, three of them were successful and three of them were not successful in there so my father was very instrumental at helping these to find their way be able to develop the markets the technologies and and the resources such that they could be successful and lo and behold that was the beginning of the snow crab industry in here in Atlantic Canada
1: and JP, just to be clear, he did that while he was a senior official at the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Is that right?
2: Absolutely. So he was he so he was the government official. Okay, okay. I'm here from DFO, and I'm here to help you. Okay. So that was, that was a different time. Okay, perhaps. Okay, uh, right. And, and that was, but that was exactly what is what his mandate was to help create that industry, which he did. Um, and, uh, you know, and uh, he's, he's very, very proud of the fact that he was a very instrumental part about getting that fishery going.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, DFO doesn't have the same reputation today as it did back then, I think. If I well, don't you know,
2: there's the, they focus on other things since that time.
1: <clears throat> yes, I guess so. Now, entrepreneurship runs in your family. I I guess you're the third generation of entrepreneurs in the family, maybe more. But both your dad's mother and father had an entrepreneurship uh, streak. Um, How did that influence your dad on his entrepreneurial journey? You take a look at my grandparents and I remember going down and uh, you know, when I
2: was a young boy and we would go obviously down in the summertime, we would go and stay down in Southwest Nova Scotia. Cause you know, you know, in, from my point of view, I'd lived in Moncton and then Ottawa, and then came back to uh, the Halifax area here. But you could, you, you could see the business acumen that was primarily in his mother. Um, she had the local general store for the community. Okay, and uh, from my point of view, I was very happy because it had penny candy, but there were people that really enjoyed the fact that there was nails and hammers and all kinds of other hardware and so on and so forth, but you'd buy your groceries, you'd, it was the typical country general store, uh, and she knew how to make a buck and how to make sure that it was managed and done properly, and there's no question that my father inherited that from, from her. Um, uh, she was the business person in, in the family. Uh, there was a, there was a, like, you know, a, a mixed farm that was part of the homestead. And it was my grandfather who ran that, made sure that that worked properly, but she, she had the business acumen. She had the business, not that, I wouldn't call it background, but she put those pieces together. Um, and, and certainly, uh, you know, the parts that we would have inherited would have come out from her for sure.
0: That's a great story. We just, uh, Recently interviewed uh, uh, the CEO of Moosehead, and uh, there's, a, there's a, a matriarch up that chain in terms of that company as well. So very interesting. Uh, why don't we turn now to the history of Acadian Sea Plants. Um, can you tell us what year it was founded and what was the original product and where the initial products were sold? And just a little bit of a, an overview of the initial company. Well, I
2: can certainly tell you the year that it was founded, because uh, I I had just finished a degree in engineering, so I studied uh, at Dow, and then at that time was called TUNS. So I came out with a degree in industrial engineering, and I went home, and my mother said to me, before you go down into your room, I just want you to know that you don't have a room here anymore, because your father has started this company, and that's his office. But you're welcome to stay and sleep on the couch for as long as you like. So that was the beginning of Acadian Sea Plants out of my old bedroom in the house I grew up in. Uh, and, and, but if you take a look at that, okay, well, that sounds somewhat simplistic. Uh, after my father worked at the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, he started to work for a company called Marine Colloids. And at that time, Marine Colloids was the largest uh, uh, producer of carrageenan, which is a food gum that comes out of seaweed. And so my father had been hired to manage the raw material supply. So his job was to ensure that he would be able to get the the, the raw materials, this would be dried, baled seaweed. You take that dried, baled seaweed and he would ship it down to the, the extraction facility down in Rockland, Maine. So he started to learn the seaweed business in there. Now as the company grew, because it was the world's largest kerrigan manufacturer, they needed raw material from other parts of the world. And so they had sourcing requirements out of Mexico and out of the Philippines and in Indonesia. Uh, because my father was successful, all right, they gave him the responsibilities in Mexico and also in the Philippines. And so he was able to go and to learn these particular uh, how to manage in these in these you know, foreign markets, how you're going to get that particular raw material back into uh, into the United States. it it was and this was challenging i mean we're talking the late 60s early 70s i mean when you to get to the philippines to where he was going the ruling was something like this halifax toronto chicago los angeles hawaii guam manila and then you'd finally go to zamboanga where the seaweed farming was and it took you three days just to get there right now of course take a look at this today and you can just go almost anywhere um, you know, in, in a very short period of time. So it was, you know, it was, it, was, it was a different era. I mean, you know, I was the only person in school that, you know, that would be able to say, hey, you're, you know, my father's now in the Philippines and they're going, well, well you know, what's all that was like? You know, it was very, very different, very very, 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 very different time. But he learned all those particular pieces of managing these business at a distance in there. And so what happened was, uh, uh, you know, eventually the owners of marine colloids sold to a company called FMC. And FMC did not want all these satellite companies, so they asked my father, could you sell them off? So he sold off the Mexican one with a long-term supply agreement, sold off the Philippine one, also did the same sort of thing. And then he made an offer to uh, to the new owners of, of, of marine colloids, FMC, to take over the Canadian operation. They turned them down the first time, but not the second time. So the second time he came up, you know, proposed a different deal, a deal that was acceptable to them. And that was the beginning of Acadian Sea Plants. And so Acadian Sea Plants started out one customer, one product, which was, you know, a uh, very unsophisticated baled dried seaweed to be able to ship to the, the people in the States who were then making the carrageenan out of it. But that was a very, very uh, uh, important thing because the company started out with positive cash flow. And so, a lot of, that's one of the big challenges at the beginning when you're starting companies is that you don't have that kind of base to start from. So, he had cut all his overhead out. That's why he operated out of my old bedroom at uh, that time. The secretary, that's what they were called, was out of her kitchen, and the accountant
0: was out of her basement.
2: And that was the beginning of Acadian Sea Plants.
0: So it didn't take him long to sort of expand the business. The big breakthrough uh, in Jim Meek's book uh, talks a lot about the developing the seaweed vegetable market in Japan. Can you tell us how that happened and how important that market is to the company today? You,
2: you know, it, it, that's, that's a you know, very important point out there. But when, when you take a look at that from when he first took over Acadia, uh, w- what became Acadian Sea Plants, which was the old marine colloids, you know, the thing that he needed to prove to himself because he wasn't too sure of it is that can I really run a business on my own? Because he'd always work for other people. OK, so, you know, and there's a big difference between running a business on your own and doing that. And so for two years, he ran that. OK, made a profit out of it and was able to do it. So he actually had to show to himself that he actually had those pieces. And so that that continued to go on. That was 19. um that was a 1981 going to about 1985, and he was still operating out of, out of my old bedroom at that particular point in time. But there was no question that uh, having one customer only with a five-year contract, all right, that's a very, very, very risky uh, business uh, 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 way of, of, of doing things. I mean, you don't – you just – you know, if you lose that one customer, you don't have anything anymore. So it's not, not a great position to be in. And so he knew that it was going to be very important to diversify into other product lines. And so uh, he started that. Actually, he started, you know, it was very interesting. He started, he said, you know what, I think we're going to, we're going to, we're going to buy lobsters. We're going to pound them. And then we're going to go and see what we can do to, to sell them on the market. He tried that for the first year and lost some money. All right. And he tried it again the second year. And guess what? He lost a little bit more. And then he went to the bank and he said, you know what, I'm closing all of that. And the, and the comment that came back was really interesting. He, the bank said, you know what, you know, we're, we're impressed because we didn't have to tell you to do that. You did it on your own. So some really interesting lessons at the very beginning there that he himself learned about what, you know, what you needed to do to do that. So let's get back to the knitting. Let's see what he could do to diversify into other seaweed species, and so he started to look at uh, one called Ascophyllum nodosum, and that's one that we used that could be used to make animal feed products. So he started to make products out of that particular thing, and that was going to diversify away from uh, uh, away from the you know the dependence on that one large customer that they had at the time. But it was an interesting thing that he would learned when he worked for marine colloids. Marine colloids was the largest carrageenan manufacturer, but marine colloids, uh, the people that were uh, uh, the running it, um, particularly the president, president um, was an individual who had a PhD from MIT and had been a professor there. And MIT is really known back then and even today for their ability to spin off high technology companies. And so uh, that individual, a guy named Pete Bixler, uh, what made sure that marine colloids was on the leading edge of carrageenan technology and so my father was able to watch this happen he say, huh we could they could always differentiate the products and make them slightly better and get a better price for the products and then the others could not replicate them without years of work and so on and so forth so they were always ahead of the game and so when he saw that saw that uh, the way that marine colloids did it when he uh, when he built Acadian and of course he started next to nothing he said you know what we have to diversify ourselves by adding technology and so if we can add technology we won't be in the commodity markets we will be able to go and differentials products and somehow do that and so he uh, was when I joined up with my father in 1986 when he's still out of my old bedroom These are the discussions that we had. How are we going to to do that? And so we started to look at what could we diversify more into. So the example that you use, which was the cultivation of of cultivated products for the Japanese market, uh, that was an interesting one because that came out of a uh, a cultivation facility that we had been growing seaweeds for carrageen and extraction for FMC marine colloids. And FMC Marine Colloids, they had this large company okay, that come in and they had the new management that came in and they decided that they didn't want these types of products anymore. So we had to go down, down to Southwest Nova Scotia in front of 75 people and tell them we had going to close that facility because we lost the one customer that we had. And so that was not good. And that's another lesson that was learned at that particular time was that, you know, you just can't have that kind of dependence. And so we would we would uh it was interesting we would we would go every three years to something called the International Seaweed Symposium. I mean, can you imagine how much fun that is Five hundred people that only want to talk about seaweed all right so I mean for us it's like a mecca but we ran into a guy from Japan who said, "You know what we need a cultivated seaweed product because we can't get enough of what we're looking for and we started to look at that and we had an association with National Research Council's uh, local laboratory. Today it's called the Institute for Marine Biosciences. And so we sat down with them and said, how can we possibly grow this stuff for the Japanese market? And so by utilizing their scientific expertise, their you know the types of things that they were bringing to the table and, and with, our, with our business skills, we're able to come up with this cultivated product for the Japanese market. You know, now you're leaving out years of technical details and all that sort of stuff, but you can get the picture. And it was, an, uh, it was an opportunity to be able to go create value added products differentiated through technology. Nobody else could do this kind of stuff. And so that's part of that mentality that came way from way back from MIT all the way through and then still is here today at Cadence plans.
1: Uh, JP, this would be a good opportunity to talk about your your role in the company. You mentioned that you joined the company in 1986, so you've been there a few years. (laughs) I'm the the youngster. I've only got 35 years experience. And and you realize my father
2: is 91 and he still goes to work. So this is what entrepreneurship is like. Right.
1: I know, and that's that's uh, that's a a great story. You know, I've I've known several people like that in Atlantic Canada that continue to be involved in their businesses. Uh, uh, JK Irving comes to mind in the same situation, but just tell us a little bit about your history with the company and kind of when you took control of uh, the management of it.
2: You know, it's, 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 it's really quite interesting because uh, so, so I had gone, I, I, as I said earlier, I did an engineering degree. Um, I really had two careers. I then went, went after my engineering degree, went worked at SO for a while I decided I, I wanted to go back to school. I did an MBA at, in, in Montreal um, at McGill, um, and but the, in, in, at that time the MBA was uh, you know two years with a summer in between, and so um, I, I was actually on leave of absence from uh, from SO at, to to go and to do that. But in that summer in between, uh, my father said, "Why don't you come down? To, why don't you come down to uh, Nova Scotia and see what this little business that I'm running out of your old bedroom?" In? you know is all about and in and so i did i came down i put in the first computer and okay a compact 386 for those of you who can remember <laughs> what that is right um and uh you know uh, oh yeah i would lotus one two three and all the fun stuff okay so i mean that goes way back but you know install that kind of stuff but the biggest thing that we learned that summer between my father and myself is that we could work together and that was a very, very valuable thing because it was you essentially risk-free of going back to school anyway. Okay. But we learned we could, we could work together. And so when I graduated, um, I, you know, after that second year in there, uh, my father said to me, now, do you want to see what we can do together? Do you want to see if you can build something, you know, uh, you know, you want to give it a go? And I said, well, you know, I came down last summer. I've seen all the numbers. I put all the budgets together, and I know we got no money. So I said, well, let's, but let's give it a whirl, okay, to see what we can do. And that was the beginning. But there was one thing he said to me, okay? He said, okay. He says, he says this is exciting. But he says, he said, you need to know this. And he goes, he, he says, it's very important that you understand this. If you can't do the job, I will have to fire you but you'll always be my son and I will always love you. And it was, I've never forgotten it, as you can tell, okay? It was very instrumental. And that's the way business is, okay? Just because you're family, you are not entitled to anything, okay? And it's an important, it was an important thing. And I, the the, the amount of wisdom he had to say those kind of things at that time was so, so important. Because it sets the tone, all right let's see what we could do and let's make it work and that was the beginning of the you know my association um, with him, and we've had a fantastic time over the last thirty plus years of working together to build acadian sea plants
1: uh, uh, just for clarity, when did you assume um, sort of responsibility for the operations? So it, it was
2: very interesting. Obviously, at the beginning, my father was the president but, uh, of the company. And, and, and I was, um, I, mean, I think it was a director or marketing or vice president or something like that. Uh, but there, we, really, there was not much there. But what we did, though, was we split the responsibilities. So he was really doing manufacturing, R&D, um, you know, uh, finance. I did sales, marketing uh accounting systems you know at nighttime i was cabling up the networks for you know for the rudimentary stuff that we had i mean you couldn't afford to do any of that stuff this is what you did right Mm -hmm. and so so we did that and we would compare notes all the time but it, it was it was a it was great because we didn't get into each other's way and we did our pieces and made those pieces grow along those times so i you know, there there was a point in time when you know my father said it's time for you to be president, and and, and, and so long and behold, I became president, um, and he became chairman of the company as such, like that. Um, and we have a fantastic relationship, but there would there be a few times that I have to sit down with him and go, now, do you want to run the company, or do you want me to run the company? Right. So you have that kind of, of kind of things that happens from time to time right and he goes and then eventually he goes i want you to run the company all right fine okay so then okay so you know off we would go along those lines um and so th- you know that became uh, you know a for me obviously it was a very very you know in, important change um and, and 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 but he's still active and he he likes to be involved in things that he can tinker with as a the way i would word it um uh but uh, you know uh you know i go for walks with him regularly and when we go for walks, a little piece of paper comes out of his pocket, and it's his list of things that we need to do, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I remember one time saying to him, he goes, I, I, I said, he goes, we're not doing this, we're not doing that, da, da 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 And I said, now, listen, last year we did this, 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 and this. He goes, yes, but he says, I don't have that much more time. how do you respond to that so uh.
1: (laughs) well once an entrepreneur always an entrepreneur obviously but you know it sounds like that transition has been exceedingly well done and it's it's very hard to do as you know so it 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 often fails so congrats on that part Uh, maybe you can give our listeners a little sense of the size of the company obviously it's private uh, privately held so we're not really asking for revenue numbers but what about the number of employees maybe offices that they have size of your manufacturing facilities that sort of thing. So uh,
2: obviously we we started here at Atlantic Canada and in Atlantic Canada um, we had a head, we have a head office in Burnside you know we've got about 70 people that operate out of there. Um, we have three manufacturing facilities um, in Nova Scotia one in, in Cornwallis uh, one in Yarmouth and one in Charlesville near pubnico um, we also have an R&D center that we created. Well, this is very important because that the legacy of you know investing in research and development. We have over 50 researchers that are located um, not just in Cornwallis but in other parts of the world. Um, we have a manufacturing site that's in New Brunswick. And in 2014, we bought the largest seaweed processing company in Ireland. Right? So we were very pleased to be able to do that. We bought it from the government and was. Uh, Quite a, a, a challenge, uh, but they decided that that w- the best w- what was in best interest of that company was to sell it to us. Um, in uh, 2017, we bought a startup seaweed company in Scotland. 2019, we bought another one in Scotland, and in 2021, we bought the largest a seaweed distribution company for Icelandic products um, that's located in the States. That was more challenging because uh, we're right in the middle of COVID and uh, we eventually bought it sight unseen. So so, uh, without actually having a look at it because we couldn't really cross the borders to go and to do that. So those are the operations that we have. Today, we have full-time employees that work for Acadian sea plants in over 21 countries. Um, located throughout the world and we export our products to 80 different countries um you know and in and, in and, and that in itself is a, is a challenge because whenever anything happens around the world it invariably it will affect us um and and, and as, a, as a as a as an example um uh, we have customers in both russia and ukraine okay so you can imagine the challenge and obviously at this time we're not doing any business in russia um, but we're attempting to do what we can in Ukraine. So you can see the, the kind of challenges that we have uh, in, in those particular areas. Um, today, we have a, over 400 employees, 50 researchers. Um, we have we set up a formulations laboratory in Malvern, England. Um, and so we're pleased with that. And that, in conjunction with our R&D center um, that we have in Cornwallis, uh, we're able to go and to create... Very unique formulated products for our clients um, that uh you know allow us to really differentiate ourselves from our um, uh, customers from our, our competitors um, in one of our product lines, which is our, our our extract that we have as a biostimulant for growing crops
1: uh, i just again I just want to talk a, a second uh, David about the value of having head office in in our communities in our provinces you know you're a good example you've got worldwide operations but all the head office jobs are in nova scotia you know the the good part of them at least and and you know that those are valuable because a lot of mostly the revenue that support that is probably coming from outside nova scotia right you know it's it's, it's
2: so yeah <laughs> We sell zero, so, so um, uh, products in really in Nova Scotia, nothing. Uh, we're 98% export out of Canada, all right? So from that point of view, and it really underscores, when you're looking at economic uh, development, uh, the importance of, of exports is, is absolutely crucial because that is money. That is, you know, there's somebody on the other side of the world or wherever, that is paying for a product that's manufactured here in Atlantic Canada. And a part of that money is gonna go through taxation to pay for healthcare and education. And those things are so valuable. And remember, if we were trying to dip, if it was only Nova Scotia's market and the amount of money that's in here, you can't, you, you, you can't generate enough. Whereas if you if you have a product or a service that can be exported, you can then uh, you, the, the whole world is waiting for you, and so those are the types of things from a from a local economic point of view. is so important, but that aspect of having the head office here um, in in a, in in Nova Scotia is very 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 important because you're also you're always looking to see well what is it that we can do to enhance the company, but it also enhances the country that we live in and the provinces that we live in here. So. So um, you know, you know, we're a big believer in, in in if you you know because we you know we're not a branch plant from somewhere else, okay? So we can't go home because this
0: is home, okay? <laughs> JP, you sound like Don and I. You're, we you, we need to have you on as an economic development guy. That's exactly the point. Most of what uh, households consume in Nova Scotia uh, is imported. The cars, your televisions, most of the food you eat. So we need to have those export industries to offset that because that's where the real GDP and tax benefits come from. So thank you for that little primer on economic development for our listeners. I appreciate that. I, I wanted to come back a little bit on the research piece because I think that's very exciting and something I don't know that everybody knows about your company Um um, 50 people in your R and D center, that must be one of the largest private sector research, uh, organizations in the region. I mean, McCain foods has one around 50 in Florenceville, but that's an impressive, uh, operation. Can you tell us a little bit more about your R and D activities, uh, and how it drives your success?
2: Well, I think, I, I, I think the, the sad part in that. Is that uh, when we when I talk to our auditors, OK, and they and they tell us, you know, you have one of the largest R&D claims in this province. And I'm going that, that I, I have a hard time because I remember I don't know any. I don't know other companies. So I just assume that everybody else does the same types of stuff that we do, which is not true. All right. And many times I've spoken to people and they say, you know, you got a cadency plans is more of an anomaly than, 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 than that. But this, this concept that if you invest into research and development, undoubtedly, and you do it wisely and do it carefully, and it is one of the hardest parts of the business to manage because, you know, what do researchers want to research? This is a trick question. They want to research everything in every direction. It doesn't really matter because they just love to do research and for the sake of knowledge. We are trying to focus that into something that sooner or later will provide economic benefit to the company and to the rest of us. right? And that is that is not simple. The other thing that they will want to do is never stop the research on something and say, well, let's go with it. Because it's like, oh, no, and no, 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 we still need to prove this and that and that and that. No, no, no we're we're going to the market with something because it, it's, it's good enough, right, that kind of thing. It may not be perfect and it never will be. But that whole aspect, and if you look at that, I think we have 15, 15 16 PhDs on staff, okay, that, along with those other researchers. But they're not just located here in, in, in Nova Scotia. We have some of these that are located around the world in various areas. Um, And there, and there, because when we, when we learned a long time ago that if we wanted to sell our products in different markets, you had better be able to show how they work in those markets. Um, And the fact that it can, you know, that these biostimulants can grow a tomato in Nova Scotia is irrelevant because if we're down in the, for example, in the San Joaquin Valley in California, they want to see trial work that shows that this works here. Oh, and then it gets this, it goes, you know, it, it gets down to this. Okay. I remember being down there, you know, a long time ago. Um, and we're talking about this trial was done in San Joaquin Valley. He said, well, yes, but you did that on the east side of the valley and we're on the west side and it's different over here. Okay. You know, you get that kind of, kind of, kind of, oh, 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 kind of thing that comes up there. But as we did this and the thing that's challenging with research and development is it doesn't always work. Right. So so you're gonna spend money that's not gonna give you the results you're looking for. Our researchers are very quick to say, well, look at this failed experiment. Look what we learned, and they're all excited. And no, I'm not as excited as you, because if that had been successful, we would have had something more to the, to the market. But you do learn, you even learn from your failures. And so so you will it's you know, the, the, the investment on research and development is a long term investment. It's a very worthwhile if you have a long term vision. Okay, and And you're ready and prepared to do these things. All right. You can you can you can then develop technologies. But I think that's one thing that's important. And we learned this a long time ago is that you don't need to do this on your own. Right. You can do these. You can do research partnerships with academic and research institutions such as National Research Council, such as Dalhousie's Ag Campus in there. All right. Um, And we've we've done research uh, uh, with so many different organizations here in Atlantic Canada, but also we've done them in other institutions down in Alberta on animal feed products. We've done them in the United States and Texas Tech University and many, many other, and in countries all over the world. So those research partnerships, because they bring different things, different skills, different abilities, different uh, uh, pieces of equipment that we would never have. You marry that together and you leverage your own research uh, efforts, put all those pieces together like that. And then sooner or later, value will come out of that that allows you to create differentiated uh, value
0: added products to go to the market with. JP you've mentioned a couple times your agricultural biostimulants there's a great story in the book about these products using Florida helping Florida farmers grow bumper crops of quality oranges I mean who would have thunk it uh, can you tell us a little bit of, uh, more about that side of the business the biostimulant business well it, it, it this,
2: is, this is this was a fascinating because in the early days um, when we start we took this one seaweed species Ascophyllum, and we made an animal feed product out of it and, you know, and I was the sales and marketing person for the company. The, the only one we had. And now we probably have 150 or so. All right. And I was going down in, into the U.S. Midwest selling this stuff as an animal feed product. And I had more customers come up to me and say, don't you have an extract? Because the Europeans had an extract made from the same seaweed. And I, and I just they kept asking over again, do you have an extract? So we came back. I came back and said, you know, we got to look at this. So we put together a project with National Research Council with their scientists and we studied it and we put those again. Look at that. Another association with the with the with a research institution. And we put together about an 18 month project in order to make that kind of that kind of seaweed extract. Um, and it was interesting because I had re- I had gotten samples from some of the customers of what these things were like. But what I didn't know is the samples that I had were very high quality ones, and and whereas their quality was variable, right? So what we patterned ourselves was to make a better product than their high end product, and so we had a reputation very very quickly of having being making a very consistent, you know, better better product out there, um, and so that enabled us to get into the door went pretty quickly into that particular market. But the market at that time was the organic community and at that time because this is look uh 19 uh, mid uh, late late 1980s the organic community was more of a movement than a than a business sector it was people who were doing it for philosophical reasons as opposed to to make money and so we were able to bring these organic certified products to the market um, and that was our initial entree now it was, it was obvious that we went and talked to mainstream agriculture that they said what is this they, they, this doesn't make any sense we don't understand how you could possibly have uh, the, the kind of results that you have out of that we've analyzed the product and, and there's not that much in it so we looked at that and said what well, the only way that we're going to build this business is if we go and do the research work necessary and publish papers over and over and over again that showed how these products actually did work and then did enough research work to show why did they work. And so we were the first people who did work at the molecular level to understand how our products impacted the genes inside the plants, either upregulating them or downregulating them. And then we really started to understand how this worked. We brought that to the market. And then lo and behold, sooner or later, the mainstream agriculture community started to look at this and go, okay, now we understand you guys have done your homework. We weren't the only people doing that, but we were part of a small group that did that on a global basis and really enabled this whole uh, biostimulant sector to now, today, it is a a, a very standard part of agriculture. And so that was was a very, very exciting and still is very exciting time. And I have another story along those lines, but uh, I'll wait for that. You, I can see that you want to ask me a question.
1: Uh, well, th- those are really that, that's a great story uh, in itself because you know you're you're kind of leading the way, and again, it gets back to research and development, doesn't it? Uh, one of the uh, one of the things that I noted in your book was your father's commitment to rural Nova Scotia. You're, you're an important company that has, you know, operations in rural Nova Scotia. They wanted to ask you about the business environment in the, in Nova Scotia these days. What are the biggest challenges that stand out for you? And and maybe a secondary question, you know, what could be done to ensure companies such as yours thrive going forward? Yeah, uh,
2: you know, I, I think one of the biggest challenges today today, if you look at today's challenges okay labor availability is a big issue here here in not just in nova scotia but in canada as a whole you know we have a an aging more of an aging population in there we have a you know we you know we certainly didn't create the babies that like the baby boomer generation did at the time um during covid immigration basically stopped and now we've opened up the tour door, the doors again and that's fantastic and, and the very important part of it but i think in canada here and in, in the the big challenge that we have is that we have a very very poor regulatory environment with respect to immigration so it's 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 quite difficult for companies like us to go and to go and attract people to come to canada to work because it's often you, you, you're stuck in, 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 in a challenging environment. There has been improvement, all right? There, there's the provincial uh, nominee programs. There are some Atlantic immigration pilots. Those are steps in the right direction. Uh, but, you know, there, it, it is like there's no way that we can deal, for example, with an embassy on the other side of the world to try to advance a case to go a little faster that that does not exist in the federal, the leadership in the, in, in, inside the, 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 the federal system even acknowledges that, look, you know, we got a lot of work to do in order to fix that. So we really have to look and see, well, what are we going to do to make sure that we have the people necessary to be able to go and expand our businesses? And obviously, you know, if you're building a company or you're building an economy, if you don't have the people, the only way you do build things, it's either it's either through labor or capital, if you don't have enough labor, then you go and you automate, you invest in, in capital, uh, but you can only do that. There's a lag there between the time that you automate something, and it takes time to do that and money to do it also in there. Um, so so um, that, I think, is one of the biggest challenges. When we look at the rest of the operating environments, and, and I do have uh, the opportunity to compare us again because we do, because we do business in so many different places. Um, There are actually significant advantages here in Nova Scotia because it is easier to do things here in spite of, there's a lot of people going to say there's many challenges. It is easier, for example, for us to build a a building here in Nova Scotia than it is to do one in literally any country in Europe. What you have to do to get permission in Europe is far more stringent than it is over here. And, and, it's, and it's stringent because the process over there is such that anybody can object to you for no good valid reason, and then you have to fight that off, okay? Whereas o- over here, that doesn't exist. I'm just talking about building a building, okay? All right? I'm not talking about anything else. Nobody generally objects to putting a building unless, of course, it's blocking your view or something along those lines. So your your regulatory environment, in many ways, here in Atlantic Canada, is is a is a is a better environment than in a lot of other places around the world.
1: Uh, one of the things that we did want to just reference uh, as we get near the end of our conversation, JP is. Uh, uh, the work uh, that uh, your father was involved in, 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 on many community initiatives. One in particular that we're interested in is his role in revitalizing the French language college Saint Anne, his alma mater, after it fell on hard times. And he ultimately became, uh, chancellor uh, of the new university Saint Anne. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's, it's a really important part of um of the culture in nova scotia that that particular work that your dad was involved in
2: you know it's kind of interesting there was one time when you know uh, my father called me into my office and he said i just got a call from the governor general's office and 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 he says and and he's kind of got this perplexed look on his face and i said oh and what do they want he said they said i'm going to get the order of canada and 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 he and he goes. I don't understand why they're giving me this. He, he said they said business development and 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 the the impact that I've had in the community. And he said I don't I don't see it. And I said I then st-, I started rattling off all these things that you've done in the community. And he goes, oh yeah, I guess I did do that, right? So it was very interesting to see how he perceived that. But there's no question he's he he both him and my mother very very proud of their acadian heritage um have instilled that into us on um, there and he knows that if he had not gone to university saint Anne, you know maybe he'd just be working uh you know in the woods doing something differently all his life because he would not have had the education and the opportunities that he had so he and 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 one of the things that he's taught we operate in rural communities all over the world all right um and whether it's in scotland or in ireland in these remote communities because that's where the seaweed is all right and it's not in halifax harbor or any of those types of things all right it's way out in these rural areas and if we're not supporting those communities in those areas then who is okay so it was a very important and my father taught me that he goes we need to be there in those communities be part of the communities be able to to do our part to move those agendas forward and and when you look at that I I grew up in Halifax Dartmouth for all practical purposes um and I have a name my name is Jean-Paul Deveau it's a pretty French name but I never spoke French because there was no French education system my parents spoke French okay and none of us None of it. We all answered in English. Now I, I cheated. I went and lived in Montreal for about six years, and you know, and, and this is how you, this is how um, you know you can shock your mother. So I came home one weekend, and I only spoke French the whole weekend with her. Okay. So and you talk about um, um, that had that was that was that was that made her weekend anyway. But but the whole idea because I never had that opportunity to study he tried studied French he he wanted to make sure that those things were advanced and, and worked at that uh, in there and today not today because my son now my son who's, who's 25 years old and he has a degree in mechanical engineering like my my, my father does but he went to the he went to bois and carrefour so he did primary to 12 100 percent in French okay and then and then went to Queens and studied that and then he's fully bilingual i I I, I can speak, but I can read at about grade six, and don't ask me to write too much. Okay, so that I didn't have that, and that's the kind of things that has that was very important to him, um, and, and 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 he put a lot of effort into into the community um, down in Southwest
0: Nova Scotia and University of Santa Center. Are there any other philanthropic focuses that you and your family have in in the area? I have to laugh i have i'll tell you i'll share i'll share this story with you so
2: there was one time i was working really hard and all that stuff because we we're growing the company and all that kind of stuff and he comes into my office my father comes to my office he goes gp you need to volunteer okay you're not volunteering you're not doing anything out there in the community you need to go do something doesn't matter what it is go do something he says you'll see you'll get something out of it all right so i go and i joined a board i think it was um um Bionova Life, the Nova Scotia Life Sciences Biotechnology Association. Eventually, I opened my mouth a little too much and I became chair, so on and so forth. That's the way it goes, that kind of stuff. But I got, I had this opportunity to join the board of the 2011 Canada Winter Games. And and then it was obvious that this thing was, we didn't have a chair and all that sort of stuff. I'll skip the story. I, I became chair of that um it, it was an amazing amazing experience um five six years of my life in there 6103 volunteers 46 million dollar budget and we raised 10 million dollars ourselves the rest comes from the government right and it was it, it was it was this it was it was very few people that get the privilege to have done what i did in that and 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 i have to go back to my father because at the time, he says, listen, if you really want to do that, I said, I think I can make a difference. Um, and he says, if you do, I'll step in at the company. It was like 75 at the time and, and fill in whatever you needed. And he encouraged me to do that. And I came out of that experience not the same person. Um, I got I got more out of it than I put into it, and I put a lot into it, I must say. okay, And, and, that, and it was a fantastic experience. But those are the types of things, the way that – that I was brought up. Um, And at the end, I I said to him, I said, now, is that enough volunteering for a while? He goes, yeah, that's enough for now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Final question for you, uh, JP. We want to know what's next for Acadia Sea Plants. You mentioned a son, age 25. Is there another DeVoe generation coming behind to take over the company?
2: Well, I mean, you know, a couple of things in there, and uh, I'll come back to that one in a second here. Um, but it was really interesting about four or five years ago. See, like, I'm a 30-plus-year seaweed guy, just like my father is also. Um, and from that point of view, we were building a company that was really turning into an agriculture company. And it was in, 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 And I'm not a 30-year agriculture guy. So I looked at what do we have to do to really grow this business? And I found an individual and, and, and we sat down and, and we were able to bring him into the company and people told me, and you know, he says, you know, you know, you know, Nelson, who's who's the guy that, that came and joined our company, you know, there may be some people that are looking to see what he did because he ran an ad company for years. And when he came in, lo and behold, you know, 50 of the people that used to work for him are now in our company. And so the future of our company is very, very exciting because we're making these agricultural companies. And now we brought in 50 people who understand agricultural business. And they are, one's in Beijing, okay, one's in Sao Paulo, one's in Atlanta, okay, one's in England, one's in Slovakia, they're all over the world. And these are senior people who have come onto that. So we see this as just a fantastic opportunity to grow the business into the future in there. And it's only because we've done, what those guys that came in and looked at us said, you guys have done 30 years of research. You got this all set up, okay? We have all this business side and business contacts. And so we're marrying all those pieces together. And so that's a very, very exciting opportunity for us in the future. But if you go back to uh, my son, who's 25 years old, um it was it was uh, kind of uh, interesting because he graduated just in, in April of 2020 I mean had been around for one month. everything had been shut down. He was planning on running around the world for a year, but he couldn't do anything. so I said, well, you know, do you want a six month contract just to work with us for a little bit and see see what it's all about? you know so we you know, he said, well, what will I do I said, well, let me go talk to the engineering guys. We'll see if there's something that's you know that's interests you. Right. We got, we got lots of work to do. And so he came in for six months and another six months, and, you know, and eventually it was, uh, uh, it, it, eventually he, he started working in, in the, you know, moving up the ladder. And now he is the, uh, in charge of all of our engineering group. Okay. So, um, he's, uh, he's, 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 uh, uh, and, and if I look at where he is today at the age of 25 and what I was like when I was 25, well, he's way ahead of me. So that's all I can pretty well say. So you'll have to ask him what uh, perhaps uh, entails into the future.
1: <laughs> well, JP, this has been a very interesting conversation. We love hearing about the history of your company and and, uh, what you and your dad have accomplished. It's a a story that not many people will know much about because of the business that you're in. It's a very specialized business, obviously, but we're really, um, this is exactly the kind of story we like to tell on our podcast. So uh, thank you for joining us and and we want to wish you all the best uh, in the future and continued success.
2: Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been a
1: pleasure here. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.